Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Joining us as uh, usual this week, uh, Chase Byers in Harrisburg, uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I got that right now. See, I, now I'm questioning myself every time I say it. Uh, yeah. How are you doing, Chase? I'm wonderful, Joe. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks. Good. And uh, Jeff Smelser will be on uh, shortly um, in Exton, Pennsylvania as well. And we are working on uh, getting a, a guest speaker on uh, the podcast this afternoon. And so we'll, we'll, Jeff is working on some of the uh, technical difficulties with that. But our plan is to uh, study through the book of Matthew, an overview of the book of Matthew. So if you are joining us, um, uh, please go ahead and, and turn uh, to uh, the book of Matthew, and uh, um, we will take a look at that here in just a moment. Um, so I think we've uh, got this accomplished. This looks good. Uh, Jeff, you're with us. I'm with you, and okay. John may not know it, but John's with us too. Hi, yes. Yeah, we have John Weaver uh, as our guest uh, panelist today. Um, uh, and so we're thankful to have John with us. Hello. Uh, some of you may know John uh, from his work at Florida College. Um, uh, but I'll tell you, when uh, we were decided to go through the gospel accounts and kind of give uh, a 45-minute overview of uh, these uh, four books, when we were talking about the book of Matthew, I said, I'd really like to ask John Weaver to present that to us because when John and I worshiped together in Fairlawn, New Jersey, John uh, took a, a quarter or two and uh, taught through the book of Matthew. And I was just really impressed with the, the layout, the simplicity, and, and certainly his knowledge of the book. And so uh, appreciating that from, I don't know, how many years ago was that, John? Six, eight years ago? Let's um, say that. Okay. And, Did uh, you guys so, say 68 years ago? Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Yes. Um, hey, John. Uh, good to have you this afternoon. Let me just mention to you here, we, we kind of keep this conversational that I'm just warning you. Uh, so if we become too annoying, you just tell us to be quiet so you can get said what you want to say. I was going to say the same thing to you. So if, <laughs> hopefully I don't annoy you too much uh, the same way. So I love the conversation. Let's do that. Good, good. So um, I, I, I do, I, I recall uh, with, with all sincerity how impressed I was uh, with your knowledge of the book of Matthew and, and scriptures in general. Um, uh, but when you taught through Matthew, you taught through it with a passion, uh, with an understanding. Um, what's, what is it about Matthew that uh, is, is appealing to you, uh, John? Oh my, uh, there's so much. I, 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 thanks. By the way, thanks for that. I, that's, that's very kind of you to reflect on that. I, I, I loved the class in, in large part because the congregation there at Fairlawn, they brought the passion and you were in the audience. So I think that was a part of it there. Um, and, you know, I, my experience with Bible classes is the teacher, you know, is, an, is a part of it, but the audience, the, the class, the, the congregation is such a key part of it. And that's my recollection of that was that we had such a great group uh, they're studying this. Um, you know, each of the Gospels brings its its own appealing characteristics. They're so similar and yet so distinctive the more you study them. And I think for Matthew, the thing that I'm, the reason I'm probably, it's one of, it's, it may be my favorite, if I could say that, is it emphasizes so much Jesus as a teacher. 
And, um, you know, I'm a teacher. That's, my, I guess you could say my profession uh, as much as anything right now. And so um, I appreciate so much the representation of Jesus's teaching in this gospel. And um, if I had to name one thing, it's, it's that Matthew's gospel um, is very organized, it's very structured, it's very intentional about the way it teaches Jesus's teaching. And as a teacher, I I appreciate that, <laughs> you know, uh, that you the sense that um, obviously as God's word, the in, the inspired scripture has a has a history has a has a purpose to it that we believe in, but the the intention and the purpose in Matthew's gospel is just so evident, so manifest, uh, just upon even the most I would say kind of shallow reading of it, and so I love the the pedagogical if I can use that word nature of it and. Um, uh, just the clear structure and organization. It's clear. Joe, that, Joe that means educational. Just yeah, Joe. I was going to say. That's, um, uh, 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 I was I was I was busy uh, googling the word as you spoke. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's that's those are kind of the big things for me. Is just I love that you know, and you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about the five discourses, and kind of you know the way that the teaching is organized. But that's to me, um, you see those, and I love it because of that. And then. Um, and then you've got this great summary at the end, the, what we call the Great Commission, and I'm sure you all have talked about and thought about how that is kind of a, a great um, kind of synopsis of the, the content of the gospel. You, as so many layers, you just realize there's, there's a mind at work, which is so deep and so beyond us. I love that about it. So, well, introduce us to the five discourses. Yeah, let's talk about that. So uh, you have these uh, five, sometimes what people will call it, books of, of Matthew. And, you know, there's often this question of what significance should we ascribe to that? I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts about that. But as you, as you walk through the, the Gospel of Matthew, you do have these kind of different um, sections of, of, um, of discourse. So the first one, obviously, is in uh, Matthew 5 to 7. Uh, what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And so you have um, uh, Jesus's uh, sermon there, his discourse. The second uh, comes um, three chapters later in chapter 10. And, and each of these is uh, uh, kind of separated by some, some distinctive words at the end of the discourse, right? So just to, I won't, I'll, I'll not belabor this point because I want to hear y'all's thoughts on these is is at the end of chapter seven there. So you, you go to um, um, uh, chapter uh, seven, verse 28, there's this phrase, and when Jesus finished these sayings, and so you have that phrase, and at the end of chapter 10, as I recall, yeah, chapter 11, verse one, when Jesus had finished the instructions to the 12 apostles. So at the end of each of these, you have this sort of formulaic statement, which makes it clear that the author intends for these sections to be uh, separated off. And so you go to chapter 13, you have this, um, this chapter on the, the parables there. And then uh, you go on in um, uh, chapter, um, uh, what's the next one, 18 uh, there. And you have, uh, the, again, the kind of the instructions about um, the, the church and, and um, the way that it should go. And then finally, um, as you come down um, in, uh, I think it's chapter 20, actually. Um, and then you have finally in chapter uh, 23 and 24, these kind of eschatological, these end time discourses there. So it's really interesting how these, these five sections of, of, the, of the gospel are, are separated off 
um, from the others. And so it's really interesting to see that. What do you all see there? Yeah, uh, I think you're right. And uh, maybe just for, for anybody that's wanting to, to take notes or make mention of this, you, you mentioned specifically 728 and 11.1, and then would 1353. Um, 13.53, and then it's chapter 18, and then it's chapter 24 and 25. Yeah. yeah, so 19.1 has that phrase, right? Um, and then 26.1, now it came to pass after Jesus had finished all of these sayings. Yeah. Um, so I, that was that was one of the things that I don't think I had seen that until you had presented that, uh, uh, whatever uh, decade that was that we studied. Right. Um, and what's and, interesting uh, is 26.1 is different because it says all these sayings, right? You different. look at the others, it, that little phrase is not there. So there's this sense of finality even there. It's like, okay, we're done with these five sections. And so yeah. you just really get, there's this, again, this structure to it. Yeah. So John, what do you think the significance, why, why do you think Matthew put it in that way for us compared to maybe some of the other ways the gospel, the other gospels were written? Yeah. Well, you know, there's different ideas on that. My, my thinking is, is, is five, um, is a, a common organization of literary content within the within the scriptures. Um, in other words, for example, the Psalms have have kind of five sections, and of course, we're familiar with the five books of Moses. and And it seems as if um, Matthew is hearkening back to this Old Testament kind of motif uh, here of, of of five. Now, the question is: Is he what more is there to it uh, uh, that he's trying to convey? And we could talk about that. Some will say, well, he's presenting. Jesus is kind of a new Moses, you know, and as, G as Moses presented his five books, or uh, so too, Jesus is doing that. That's a bridge a little bit too far for me, but I can see how, I see how people come to that. Um, but nevertheless, um, why five? I do think he's, he's trying to, to make a connection back to uh, kind of a, a continuation of this division back you see in Old Testament works. The other thing is, is I, I think that it's, it's, it is a, the discourses, these discourse means speech, right? So these speeches are connected to the surrounding content. And um, I think that what you see is, is that in part, uh, Matthew is telling the life of Jesus and the way the life of Jesus unfolds, um, the events are conducive to this kind of um, uh, organization of the speeches of the discourses of Jesus. And so at a certain level, I'd say that's just how the life of Jesus <laughs> unfolded, you know, is that it's conducive to that five. I don't, at the end of the day, we don't know. But I, I wonder what other thoughts y'all have about the reasons for the five-part division there. Yeah, I don't know about the reason for the five-part, but you alluded to the idea of Jesus, the new Moses, and, and kind of said, well, you know, not sure if we want to make something out of the five and the five books of Moses make that connection. But, yeah. I, but of course, there is this idea that, in Matthew, you see Jesus not only as the new Moses, but actually as the one who is beyond Moses. You, you, you look back at um, the transfiguration on in Matthew chapter 17, and after Peter has suggested, let's have a tabernacle for each of the three of you, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, the voice comes out of heaven, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And right. then you get to Matthew 19, and the question is put to him, why did Moses command to give writing divorcement? And and Jesus' response is, uh, from the beginning, it hath not been so, I say unto you, which takes us kind of back to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus just says, I say unto you, and, and they heard what Jesus had to say and were amazed that he spoke with such authority. So 
Matthew does seem to be saying, look, you had Moses, now you've got Jesus, and, and he's the culmination. Yeah. And I think it's a good distinction is, is, no, is, it, is he presenting him as a new Moses? Uh, I mean, there is that prophecy, uh, you know, in, in, in Deuteronomy. But the, the question I would have is, is, is it just what you're saying? And, and I think you're right that he's, he's presenting him as the, as, the, as, the, as the new lawgiver, as the one whom God's people now, um, you know, follow in his instruction. And, and the obedience is no longer to the Mosaic law. It's, it's now to the, the law of, of Christ you know, as revealed in such passages as, as uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, there. So, yeah, it's great. I think you're right about that connection to Moses at multiple points. So I got a trivial question for you. Don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but it's in the first chapter. So, um, and it comes up often. I have people ask this question. Uh, Moses gives, I mean, Jesus, Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And of course, there's some generations that he skips and he ends up with this 14 generations from Abraham, Abraham unto David, and then from David to the to the carrying way to Babylon, and then from the carrying way to Babylon to the Christ, 14, 14, 14. Mm-hmm. And so there seems to be some purpose in, in the way that Matthew's done it. Any, any explanation, any thought? I don't have one. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, the, so the, you'll see a few ideas here. One is, is that the 14 is, is representative. The number is a symbolism uh, representing, you know, some sort of uh, a completion or perfection. So, um, you know, three times, you know, three times 14, six times seven, there's, there's, there's some sort of numerology that's in play there. And that, I think that's probably as good of explanation as any that, that, that this is not meant to be, um, it seems, an ex- I mean, we know there's, there's names that are not in there. There's, it's not an exhaustive list. It's, it's representative of, of the fact that, um, uh, you know, Jesus here is is the uh, son of David, the son of Abraham, etc. Um, I think the other thing you'll sometimes see is um, um, that fourteen, in the ways that the the uh, Hebrew letters are ascribed names, is sometimes viewed as uh, representative of the name David. If you if you uh, attentive to the ways that the Hebrew letters mm-hmm. are given numbers conventionally. Uh, sometimes they'll say, "Well, fourteen is is uh, in rabbinic tradition is the is the number of David." And so, again, the way the genealogy starts off, genealogy of Christ, the son of David, it would be appropriate that you have these fourteen um, uh, sorts of um, uh, uh, things there. And so, so, so in yeah. Hebrew, David DVD the the consonants, um, uh, but actually in Hebrew, would uh, D is the fourth and. Uh, uh, the, the V would be equal to the uh, the Bob, sixth. yeah, and then the, the and so I'd, I'd have to go back and yeah. I'd have to go back and unpack that. I know that that's an argument that's made in that, and so I don't have it in front of me yeah. <laughs> my numerological yeah. chart of the Hebrew word, but uh, right. that that's the idea. You can have, I, I, I thought that that was an appealing one because the the section and, and if you will, John, the the pericope here um, <laughs> in verses one and fourteen or one. Can you and explain 17. what you mean by that. <laughs> well, I wanted to say periacope, but I just decided not to. Uh, but, but I guess the, the, it would work. The doloth is four. The vav would be six, and then the next doloth would you'd have four, and so four, right. four, eight, and six would be fourteen. So I, yeah. I, I get there. That. You go. And, Thank you. 
That makes and, and, sense as you explain. And, and verses one and seventeen, uh, seriously, the, the, it is parentheses with David being the emphasis. Yes. Uh, yeah. So and maybe and if I could just go go back quickly to the the five speeches, I know that it is done in different ways, but but certainly the book of Deuteronomy uh, is sometimes categorized as yes. the five speeches of Moses. Quite right. Yes. And uh, I, I thought that that was intriguing to yeah. again to consider so many Easter eggs in uh, the book of Matthew for the Old Testament, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, that you, you have these, you know, very significant speeches of, of Moses um, uh, and, and, and several things even crop up of, uh, of Jesus teaching in connection with that. But you have Moses, you have David, you have Abraham, you know, Matthew is just really capitalizing on Jewish history to, to point to this perfect, this ideal Jewish servant, right? Yes, exactly. And, <clears throat> and it, go ahead. And so is the thought behind that uh, traditionally, the way I've thought about it, he, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience then. That, that's kind of who his intended target audience is for this. Isn't that an interesting or, question? You know, who, who is he writing to? Um, and, and you'll see, you know, for every, I, I, I don't, I, I think that that's a good question. The way that I read this is that, um, it is not primarily a Jewish audience. And, really? and so you could, you could argue this in a variety of ways. Um, um, I, I think that this is, the way I read this is, this is a situation which is um, um, a, a mixed audience, maybe even mainly Gentile. And you see uh, maybe a, a church which is increasingly Gentile, decreasingly Jewish, and um, the, um, there's a, um, an emphasis here upon the Hebrew uh, background of Jesus and his teachings, in part to make sure that that gets, gets transmitted to a, a, an increasingly Gentile audience. And what you see throughout the book is a real emphasis upon what's the relationship between the old and new, you know, like the, the, the wine, wine and the wineskins, the there's a great passage there in which he talks about the scribe and the kingdom bringing out of the treasure things, both old and new. This Matthew seems intent on, on emphasizing continuity in the midst of the difference there with the Gentile church. And so I, I don't know that we can determine who the main audience is. Another interesting, you know, well, so I'm not sure on that. Well, but. And I'll just say that that's kind of helpful to think about because as I think about it, when I'm reading through the gospel of Matthew as a Gentile person myself, obviously, anytime I hear Matthew refer to, and this was happened to fulfill, it makes me as a Gentile person go, well, what is, what is he talking about? And it makes me want to go back and learn it. And so yeah. that would be an effective way to send people wanting to know more about the Torah and knowing more about the law. Right. Um, and so, right. uh, yeah, that yeah. I'd not thought of it from that perspective, but that would, I think, equally make sense. Yeah. Well, we don't have a, a whole lot of time today, but if you could maybe just characterize for us the, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five through seven, just kind of give us a quick overview of that and leave some time to get on to some other things in, in yeah. Matthew. But in general, how would you characterize that? What, what well, that's a great, a great question. I, and I, um, I think, I mean, what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, there's this, I mean, first of all, this is, um, I think, for many Christians, um, at the heart of the gospel, there is a there's a depth, there's a um, a complexity uh, to this, which um, I think we recognize. This is uh, Jesus's teaching, um, um, kind of par excellence uh, here, and so there's a 
um, you know, the there's a uh, obviously Matthew, it seems to me, has uh, given us this as kind of a the preeminent set piece of Jesus's uh, a teaching. And, and just to note that, that this is introduced in chapter uh, four, verse 23, with, uh, with something that happens a lot in the Gospels of Matthew, where he will have some narrative. That is, he's telling a story, and the story sets you up for the discourse, right? And the way that he does that in chapter uh, 4, verse 23, right before the Sermon on the Mount, is he, say, he says he's going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so what you then have in the, in the following three um, chapters is this, this teaching and this proclamation, and then what follows will be a series of, of, of uh, healing uh, stories. And so he's, he's he sets us up and he, and he presents Jesus very much like a figure like Moses. And he, he begins uh, famously um, uh, sharing the Beatitudes and, and the Beatitudes and the antitheses, which are the, the contrasts which, which follow there uh, in, in the discourse, are, are highly structured, um, uh, highly organized um, um, teachings. This is very, this is a this is a it, we would we would think of this as a very outlined <laughs> sort of sermon. It's highly organized, uh, highly structured. Yeah, and so you have the the beatitudes here, and then the antitheses. And it seems like what's going on in this is that Jesus is is really emphasizing kind of the the two uh, a two edged message. Uh, the idea there's kind of just contrast here. So on the one hand, um, you know you need to be um, you need to be poor in spirit, you need to be mournful and be meek, and yet he's, he's showing the flip side of that, the tension that's, that's involved in that and in, in, the, in the Beatitudes, and all of this is meant to show the sort of righteousness or the sort of good life uh, which the follower of Jesus in the kingdom should live. So this is kind of a kingdom ethic here that he's, he's describing. And what he's emphasizing is, is this is a fulfillment. This is in continuity, a, a summative sort of statement of what God has been saying all along. This is not a, 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 a denial of the, of the law, as he says uh, famously there in verse uh, 17, I come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so there's a continuity, a fulfillment, a summation there. And he's, he's lifting up um, uh, Old Testament principles and rabbinic interpretation of those and emphasizing his own authority in teaching that. You walk away from the, the, the Sermon on the Mount realizing, oh wait, look, I'm, I, the one who I'm needing to follow and obey to be loyal to is no longer Moses, it's no longer the laws, certainly not the rabbis, the scribes and Pharisees he talks about in verse 20 of chapter 5. It's Jesus, and, and that's kind of the, the point of the final section here of chapter 7, when at the end of his, his, um, his uh, sermon, the people are kind of walking away from this, and the crowd's astonished in 7 verse 28, realizing that he is the one who has authority and not their scribes. And of course, what, what unfolds in that is Jesus's interiorizing intensification of principles uh, in the law and also interpretations of the law. And so you have here a sort of kingdom ethic where Jesus is establishing his own authority and showing primarily at the individual level, I think that's noteworthy, primarily at the individual level, how, how uh, his followers, his disciples should conduct themselves and, and should behave. And um, this sets the stage in many ways for um, 
the rest of the of the gospel, but it's emphasizing how one should be a disciple. And I think that's the key point here. Is this a this is a, a theme of Matthew? Is uh, what does discipleship look like? If if you're my master, if you're my teacher, how should I live? And this connects. I'll stop here um, uh, to the final uh, statements in Matthew and this great commission where he tells his 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 uh, eleven disciples, look to go out and make disciples of all nations and the question of how you make disciples and what has he commanded them is answered in large part in in matthew 5 6 and 7 that kind of sets the stage uh, for what it is to be a, a disciple of jesus so lots more themes that run through uh, this but it's again highly structured highly emphasizes the the intensity of, of Jesus's uh, requirements upon his, his followers. And, and the cost of that is, is, is something that he emphasizes as well. What do you all see in terms of uh, five, six, and seven things you'd emphasize at a thematic or overarching level? So just one quick observation, and this is perhaps has no, um, uh, maybe it wasn't intended at all, but it catches my eye. Um, you have Jesus going up on the mountain to do this. And uh, again, that harkens back to so many images from the Old Testament, particularly Moses at Mount Sinai, um, uh, and then uh, Ebal and Gershom, uh, you know, the mountain deliverance, the message is being delivered. Um, but after he teaches this on the mountain, then, and, and you mentioned sort of the, the, the great conclusion to the book of Matthew he sends the disciples in Matthew 28, 16, he says, meet me on this mountain. And they go to this mountain where they receive the great commission to go forth and teach as well. So it's kind of like he is teaching men who are going to become teachers. He's, he, he starts it on a mountain. He sends them from a mountain as well. Again, I don't know if it's intended, but it helps to kind of paint a picture for me. I think you're right. And, and people, interpreters have noted that in Matthew's gospel, um, the the instruction that are the, the commissioning that Jesus gives to his apostles and other disciples um, in, for example, chapter 10 and elsewhere in the gospel, don't include the instruction to teach. It's really only until you get down to the very end, as you're pointing out, okay, the whole story has been told, okay, now, <laughs> yeah. now go and teach. And I do think there's that explicit connection between him on the mountain and them and uh, that commissioning uh, there. That's right. Hmm. So one quick question in, in Matthew 5, and, and again, I know you want to move on fairly quickly here, but um, when Jesus is talking about he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it, there's this statement at the end of verse 18 where he says, uh, not one jot or tittle shall pass away till all things be accomplished. Um, and then he says, well, I guess that's it. Uh, heaven and earth shall pass away, I guess he says, but not one jot or tittle shall pass away. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people have wrestled with that, exactly what he's saying there. And let me run an idea by you that, that has been appealing to me and see what you think about it. Yeah. That in some sense, um, I mean, obviously we're not under the law in the sense that we don't animal, uh, sacrifice animals and so on, but everything in the law is really looking forward to something that's going to be accomplished in Christ. Take the Sabbath day, right. even. The Sabbath right. day is ultimately about the ultimate Sabbath rest. Mm -hmm. and, and so could you say that there's a sense in which the law hasn't passed away until all things are accomplished? Yeah, there's some applications of the law that are different, mm -hmm. 
But what do you think of that take on that passage? Is that whole water? No, I think I think you're right. That the idea there is that uh, Jesus Himself um, is it is uh, so He Jesus is the 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 uh, law for the Christian, insofar as He is God's word uh, to us, and so there is a fulfillment of of the of what God's law would be within Him, and then. From him comes revelation, both in his words and those of the of the apostles. Um, but but that the other point you're making is is that I think is that um, in the in the Torah in the Mosaic law, you have um, um, commands that are given, wisdom that is offered, and if the question is is what what was its purpose, what was it pointing to, what is it fulfilled in, the answer is is in. Uh, Jesus and the new covenant in, in, in his new law. And I do believe that you have in the New Testament, not only a new relationship, uh, a new covenant with God, but also a new law. And, and these are uh, the instructions of Jesus and his apostles as revealed in, in the New Testament. And so I think, I think that's right, that, that nothing, that there's, there's everything in the old law leads to, is continuous with, and points, and is fulfilled in um, um, Jesus is uh, teaching his commandments, and, and there's a, there's a, a righteousness there, um, which, um, is, um, exalted above, um, what had been experienced and taught among the, the great teachers of the old law of that day. I do like, I do like your description of, I think, I think it's right in the text that in Matthew 5 through 7, you have a picture of kingdom living, and it's a picture of righteousness in the kingdom, and I like your point that and you just kind of mentioned this in passing almost, but the focus is upon individual behavior and individual character. And maybe that fits with a transition from an Old Testament view where the people of God were kind of corporately defined. And we come to the New Testament kingdom in which we don't get to, to jump in a boat and say we're in the right boat on the way to heaven. We've got to individually be disciples of Jesus Christ. I think that's right. And I, and I think that part of what he's doing here is he's, he's appealing. So there's a, I think there's a progression in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is teaching to Jews, obviously, and he's appealing them at the individual level, their individual responsibility, their heart, their disciple, that is he, he is, he's their teacher and they need to be individually his disciples. And what you find is, is that as it, as it goes along in the, in the, um, in the in the gospel, he 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 faces more and more opposition from the Jews as a group, and so what ends up happening is, but so he, he he commissions his twelve. They're going out in chapter ten, and then in eleven and twelve, both from John the Baptist and from the the leaders in the of the of the Jews, he starts to encounter resistance and opposition. So, and this gets to your point about the individualism, individualism here, because when he starts to hit um, that opposition in chapter 11 and 12, his, his teaching becomes more oblique. It becomes um, more opaque, less clear, so that by the time you get to chapter 13, he's speaking in parables. And, and the reason that he's speaking in parables, famously in, in Matthew 13, verse 13, is because they don't hear. <laughs> they don't see. And so, he, you know, Matthew, Matthew chapter five through seven, you, you could argue you have a, a few parables, but they're pretty straightforward. By the time you get to 13, he's, he's speaking in parables that are 
spoken to an audience which isn't which isn't hearing him. And so he's now, you could say, veiling his his speech for the insiders. And so now you're getting an insider outsider group. So hang with me. And then what you what you begin to see is the, the again a, a, a intensification of the opposition, chapter 16, uh, uh, 17, so that by the time you get to him, uh, you know, giving um, instructions to his uh, to the to the about the church, you get over into uh, uh, um, uh, chapter uh, um, uh, what was it eighteen, and and um, you see that he's much more focused upon the group. Uh, when he begins to talk about, um, you know, the, the church and the way that it should conduct itself, and and uh, the, the the issues there regarding um, discipline and so forth, and so well, uh, chapter in chapter uh, eighteen, yeah, verses fifteen and following. Thank you. Exactly. So and, and that that section, particularly to me, John, too, that that fourth speech has a lot to do with how upside down this kingdom is going to look. Yeah. It, it looks nothing like what anyone imagines it would be. And that starts really with the master himself. He, he's not what people expect. His teaching isn't what people expect. And more than that, his disciples are not what they expect they, they're going to be. I mean, he compares them to children in that section. Um, whenever it comes to forgiveness, they have to forgive each other. Whenever it comes to divorce, you have to stay in your marriage. Uh, when it comes to riches, it can't be what rules you. And it's just so upside down in nature. Um, and so that, that's what has always stood out to me in that fourth speech, especially. Yeah. You want to talk to us a little bit about Jesus last week? We get to Matthew chapter 21, and maybe there's something you want to talk about before that, but no, we, great. we'd get to chapter 21. He comes riding into Jerusalem, and Matthew really paints a picture of Jesus um, almost inviting the, the, his opposition to come out of the woodwork and, and crucify him if that's what they're going to do. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think that, I'm sure, yeah, I think that what, one thing that Matthew is doing, and Jesus is depicting what, Matthew is depicting what Jesus is doing, is he's really um, drawing the distinction between the Jewish leaders and, and Jesus, and this is, a, there's a bigger, there's a bigger thing in play here, and that is the relationship between what will be his followers, the, the, the church, and the synagogue, and so, you know, when he when he really lowers the boom on them in, in uh, chapter uh, uh, 22 and 23, um, you, you really have this, um, you have this strong contrast between the Jewish group and those who will be his followers. And so it's like, I'm just, I'm just looked down and I caught this, my, this caught my eye. So at the end of chapter 23, um, um, he, he, he says, um, um, in verse 34, he says, Behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And I just, the thing I want to, and he goes on, but, but that, that's, that's noteworthy because as I recall, Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers who emphasizes about what, our Je what Jesus really said, and that is the degree to which when Jesus talks about the synagogue, it's not his synagogue. It's not his fault. It's, it's their synagogue. And so you, you see it, the, the distinction in Matthew's gospel. That obviously, just remind ourselves that Matthew's gospel is the only gospel that mentions the church. 
and distinguishing that and explicitly, I should say, and and uh, the synagogue. You see that contrast there, and um, and so that's one thing that's going on there uh, in those in those chapters. And um, we could there are other things too. What are you seeing as you as you get into those chapters that seems noteworthy to you? It's just astonishing to me. Um, I, I guess as I picture it, I picture the leaders of the Jews getting more and more agitated. They see in chapter 21, the crowds exalting Jesus, and they, they complain about that, and they kind of get shut down. And, and then you get into some of the parables that Jesus tells. You were just now alluding to what Jesus said in Matthew 23 about how the Lord would send prophets, and they would stone them, or they would kill them. There's a parable that Jesus tells along those lines in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33, the parable of the householder who goes away and leaves the vineyard to to his workers, and then he sends these messengers who would represent the prophets throughout time, and they're killed, and then, then he sends the son, and of course, the same thing. And it's interesting where uh, in verse 45 of chapter 21, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. Right. And, and then you get to chapter 22, and they're the questions they put to him, trying to discredit him, and that doesn't work. And then you get to chapter 23, and as you say, he, Jesus just lowers the boom. He goes through, and he calls out the scribes and the Pharisees in particular as hypocrites in, in astonishing ways. You make somebody a, that you go and make a proselyte, you make him uh, twofold more a son of hell than you are yourselves. And, yeah. and, and so it, it, it's as if Jesus has gone into Jerusalem. He says, my work is accomplished. I've done what I needed to do. I'm going to lay this out clear. And those, those who are opposing me are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, it, it, yeah Sorry, go ahead. Right. I was just going to say, and it's interesting to me, like Pilate notes in uh, chapter 27, verse 18, he knew that because of envy, they'd handed him over yeah he, he notes exactly that fact and so it, yes they're upset with jesus and what he's teaching and they're claiming he's blaspheming but at, at the bottom of it it's envy and i think you're right that fifth kind of movement here really picks that up so one of the things that i think is interesting and, and well, every verse actually right um but uh in matthew 26 to see the control that christ has for all of the frustration and the sadness and disappointed in, in particularly the leaders, um, but you have Jesus' willingness to do what needs to be done, his, his love, you know, 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Um, but uh, it's just, I, I love the way that Matthew words things, like in Matthew 26 and verse 2, Jesus is telling his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But then the next three verses are the chief priests and the scribes and the elders saying, we're not going to do this on the Passover. <laughs> no, it, it, it's just it, it, the yeah. way that it is worded is so powerful and, and, and it shows so clearly that Jesus is in control and uh, that, that he is driving um, the, the events here. Um, uh, to me, it's just so poetic. Yeah, I agree. So there's about, I think it's, is it four times Jesus says that I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed and mm -hmm. be raised on the third day. Mm -hmm. And I, maybe the last time is this time here that Joe just calls attention to in Matthew 26 too. And yet we get to the crucifixion and it does not seem 
that the 12 or um, other disciples of Jesus who've been close to him are really expecting this or prepared for it. Any yeah. thoughts? Well, it's interesting, you know, I, I, you're right. And, and of course, the, the, um, the, um, the befuddlement and the, the ignorance and the lack of belief of the disciples is, is thematic throughout all the Gospels. What's interesting is, is that in Matthew's Gospel, you know, they get off better than in Mark's. I mean, in terms of, you know, they, they do understand there is belief there. But you're right. It, it, when it comes down to it, um, here at the end, there's a they they aren't prepared uh, for this, and it's it's it is um, it's thematic to all the gospels. But Matthew has it as well. The, the the this recognition that there will be rejection and and a, a and a lack of awareness by the disciples when the time comes is 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 prominent in Matthew's gospel. I wonder to to what extent that's to some degree it's human nature a lot of us are a little hard-headed and dense I think that's right and, and to what degree it's once you have your you have in your mind something it's hard to make a paradigm shift and look at things another way if they have in their mind they finally got it around their they got their heads around the idea you are the Christ you are the Messiah you are the king all right we've got that their their preconception of what that Christ would be it's hard to move that aside to accept this crucified Christ I think that's right and I think that's that that idea of Jesus and this was this y'all brought up this in terms of his his turning upside down people's expectation that's all through the gospel I'll, let me let me bring us back just really quickly to you know Matthew 3 when John the Baptist appears and I think I think Matthew presents John the Baptist as someone who uh, as who, who doesn't expect the Jesus he gets, <laughs> you know, in other words, he's come to prepare the way in chapter three. And if you read about what he's saying, Jesus is going to do, he's going to be the one that, you know, that, that comes in and, and lays the ax of the tree. He, he throws down things into fire. He's going to, you know, gather his wheat into the barn. This is in chapter three, verse 12. He's going to burn. Jesus is a fiery figure right? And this is to your point about not meeting expectations. When you next meet John the Baptist, it's after the, 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 the missionary discourse in chapter 10, and um, uh, John the Baptist, you remember, he sends his disciples, and he says, hey, are you, this is chapter 11, verse 3, he says, are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? That's mm -hmm. always a, wh wh why does he ask that, mm -hmm. you know? And, and what it seems to be, Jesus, you know, tells him, he says, hey, look, go and tell him that I'm that I'm do that I'm you know he he has this Isianic servant uh, kind of reference to where I'm I'm he I'm healing the blind the lame are walking the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear, and I think what Jesus is saying, <laughs> John the Baptist was looking for this fiery judge, or at least he's predicting it, and then what Jesus comes along is this is this Isianic servant you know who's healing who's helping and certainly there's judgment to come, but my point is is that I think Jesus even with John the Baptist causes John to think is is this is this the guy that I was expecting and back to your point at the end I think there's this similar sort of thing with the disciples it's like you know when the time comes they just really didn't recognize they didn't they weren't aware of um of what they got um but what's interesting to me and I don't know if y'all were ready to go to the crucifixion is what happens in the crucifixion there um when you when you finally get to that and um the ways that 
uh, Matthew um, just depicts the events of the crucifixion in 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 ways that are emphasizing themes that he um, he's been he's been emphasizing throughout the book. But but I just want to I just want to echo you uh, in saying that I think Jeff, you're right about uh, the the disciples' perspective. So we've got two minutes left, John. Um, really appreciate everything you've uh, delivered. What, what else would you like to, to discuss in Matthew? And can, what can you do in a minute, 45 seconds? <laughs> let, <laughs> let me just make this point. And I, this is uh, at the very heart of the gospel. You know, um, um, Matthew uh, 27, you have a, a very, it is a unique depiction of what happens when Jesus uh, dies. And in chapter 27, verse 51, you have some, similar, uh, some interesting, familiar ideas. It's 2751, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And it says the earth shook and the rocks split. And then verse 52, you have a unique representation. The, the tombs also were open. And I'm reading for the ESV. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And that's just, just absolutely fascinating. We, mm -hmm. we, I don't, that's more than a minute that we have to talk about that. But then he says in verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, um, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I just want to make one point on that, is that unlike Luke, who accurately reports the centurion and, you know, seeing the just man, which is a very individual sort of recognition that that man is right. He is just. He's a, he's a suffering servant of God. This is a communal confession uh, of, of, the, of the centurion and those who were with him, right? And they said, truly, this is the Son of God. So you, you have Matthew, the, remember the gospel writer talking about Jesus' people, the church, and, and you have this representation of the saints, now how you want to understand that, so, but you have a, a corporate group of holy people risen, testifying there, appearing, I should say, appearing to people in verse 53, and then you have this sort of corporate confession of the main point of, of Matthew's gospel, the crystal, the title about the Christ, which Matthew most emphasizes is son of God. And, um, and so Matthew's wanting to say, if you see nothing else from the crucifixion, see that it forms a people with this common confession. That's the son of God. And, and that's what he's trying to do, I think, in large part in this gospel. Thank you much, John. Appreciate you taking time to do this with us today. Oh, what a joy. Amen. Thank you all Amen. so much. Good to see you, Chase. Jeff, Joe, thanks again. Well, th thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And uh, uh, look forward to, to maybe uh, having you on in other, other opportunities in the future. Bless you. Have a good day. Thanks.